My Sport podcast, where we're seeking to bring together the worlds of academia and professional practice. I'm Martin Foster, Applied Sport Management Lead at Loughborough University. Today, we're with Borja Garcia, Senior Lecturer in Sport Management at Loughborough University. Borja is an expert in the European Union, politics and governance in sport. Today, we're going to hear from Borja and his thoughts on how Brexit can impact the Premier League and change football forever. How are you, Borja? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's okay. Did you have a safe safe trip getting here? Oh, yes, yes. I'm just coming from the office next door, so it wasn't that difficult, really. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm glad you didn't get lost. Um, for our listeners who, who are repeat listeners, you may be aware that we've also interviewed Joe Piggin, who is the other side of next door. They don't live in the same office, so in the future, we might go slightly further afield. Um, okay, Borja. Today, we're going to talk about Brexit and how Brexit could destroy the Premier League. But before we get to it, we need to understand Brexit and what could happen. So we're going to talk about freedom of movement when the UK leaves and what the law says about this. So can you shed some light on on that? Let's try, because of course the first thing we need to say about Brexit is that we really don't know much. Uh, There is not an agreement sign and of course nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Uh, It's very difficult to know what the relationship of the United Kingdom with the European Union is going to be beyond the 29th of March 2019. And some People even want to say right now, even now, when we are five months away from March next year, that we should have another referendum so the UK should never leave the European Union. So it's difficult because we don't know basically how Brexit is going to look like. But we may try to make some guesses and some and some discussions about what actually Brexit may entail in general and may entail for football and for the Premier League in particular. So of course, if uh, the United Kingdom leaves the the European Union, what is going to mean is that they are going to leave the single market. That is quite clear. The United Kingdom also will leave the customs union, although may end up in a sort of new customs union, particularly uh, tailored for the UK. That's the latest talk in the press. Uh, and then we'll leave all the institutions. I think the important here, we need to focus especially in what leaving the single market will, will mean for, for the UK. So basically, freedom of movement will end. So let's remember freedom of movement of workers, uh, of capitals and freedom to provide services across Europe will will mean. So that means that, of course, uh, British people involved in football, players, coaches, officials will not be able to go and work freely in Europe. But similarly, of course, players, officials, coaches will not be able to come to the United Kingdom to work freely in, uh, in the area of football. So are we saying that in... March 19th, all the footballers in the Premiership that are foreign can't play anymore. Let's see, at the moment we have, uh, let's say, three types of footballers playing in the Premier League. We have uh, British players, who no problem at all. Then we have European players or EU players, uh, plus the Norway, uh, Norway and Switzerland, but let's call it them European players, who now are able to play also freely. And then we have non-European players uh, who are subject to a work permit. They are subject to immigration, to any sort of immigration policy that either the government or the football association decides to apply. However, there is, uh, there is one problem there, which is let's remember that this government has committed that any European national who is currently living and working legally in the United Kingdom before Brexit Day will be allowed to stay. So actually any football player, let's say N'Golo Kanté, 
who has a French passport and plays for Chelsea. He's now playing. He's uh, playing under a French pass passport, but because he's been living in this country for now three, four years, he's legally employed. He actually should be allowed to stay. But the same could apply to any player that any club signs in the next transfer window in January. So it could be a big transfer window of foreign players. Of European players, indeed, because according to what has been agreed between the EU and the UK, and importantly, that agreement is not only just part of the withdrawal agreement of the EU and the UK, it's also part of the legislation that Parliament has already passed. So even in the event of no deal, even in the event of no deal, theoretically, any person in a European citizen who is already living in, in Britain before March next year should be allowed to stay and to work. So as you say, any club signs any European player in the next January transfer window, in theory, even in the event of no deal, those players should be allowed actually to stay and to play in the Premier League, even, even if they do not meet the criteria of the work permit that may be established afterwards. Okay, so that work permit established afterwards. Let's pretend it happens. Yeah. It's happened now, and we're looking at skilled workers being footballers. What is that criteria? At the moment, I think we need to follow, or at least to discuss what is the actual criteria that is applied to non-European workers, which is, if I am correct, I mean, there, there are tables, but basically the, those players need to have played a number of games for their national team in their own country, according to their age. Ballpark figure, it's 75% of the game. So let's say if you want to sign a player from Brazil, which is not Europe, of course, <laughs> that player needs to have been in the national team squad for at least around 75% of the games that Brazil has played in a, in a number of years. There are tables uh, that really depends of the age of the player. Uh, Does this count for under 21s, under 18s and, and below, or is it just senior games? As far as I understand, it counts for senior games. There are, there are some, some differences there that it also depends on how powerful the country is, also basically how high the country is the in ranking. FIFA rankings. Yeah. So, uh, for example, it's not the same for a Brazilian in this case than someone from, let's say, Angola. You know, yeah. or even here, you know, Nottingham Forest has recently signed an Iranian international uh, striker. Yep. So of course, because uh, because Iran is not so high in the. Should we, in the let, should we let the listeners know that the Nottingham Forest? That's not just a random comment. Me and Borja are both Nottingham Forest fans. So if you want to join us, then become a Forest fan. Sorry for that. <laughs> the, as I said, depending of the country, it also depends, uh, and I think it also depends of the age, because of course you cannot uh, ask for a younger player to have played uh, to have played a lot of a lot of games with their national team. So there are there is a committee. There is a committee that meets um, in the FA to. Decide these cases, and and actually, uh, football clubs normally what they do they present individual cases. You know, if even uh, football clubs can make individual cases for players who, in theory, do not qualify in the letter of the law in those tables in those numeric numerical criteria. Sometimes that committee accepts it. Some other times that committee doesn't accept it. So it's really about really what we need to see is which type of work permit will be implemented for European players who arrive to the United Kingdom beyond uh, the 
period, the implementation period. And that's also uh, important. Let's remember that, again, in theory, according to the agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom, there is going to be an implementation period, an extension period. So actually, we may, we may well be looking at around 2021 as a cut-off period instead of 2019. <laughs> So with what you're saying, we're, we're basically saying that we would still be able to sign top international players with lots of caps. Shouldn't be a problem signing them because they're skilled workers. Yes, that's basically it. Yeah, uh, if we follow if we follow the criteria for non-European players, in theory, I mean that uh, it's logic to think that still top good quality skilled players skilled workers will still be allowed to work in the united kingdom uh, if i may add we are talking about the work permit but what about the quota is the football association going to establish any quotas like in the past at the moment no at the moment if your players are skilled even if they come from brazil you can bring 11 brazilian players if they are if they comply with the work permit regulations but some countries actually put a quota to that so is the Football Association going to establish a quota of European players even if they are skilled? That's a debate to be had. Uh, I don't think they will. I don't think they will, but could happen. So, we've established that top players can still come, but what about top players? Those with potential or players that haven't got the caps but currently may be playing in the Premiership. We're potentially saying that those players we won't be able to sign. In theory, yes, we, are, we won't be able to do it because they may not be skilled enough, so they won't qualify for a work permit unless, of course, the system is created in a way in which the requirements for young players are less than for more experienced players. But, of course, politically, that could be difficult because, of course, people will say, well, you are actually hampering our own young English players to develop. So it is politically very sensitive. And second, because there is a FIFA regulation, which is not very well known, but international transfers are governed by FIFA, and international transfers uh, cannot happen for under 18 players. So, you know, a player from, any, from anywhere in the world, Brazil, Argentina, cannot actually transfer to another country before they are over 18. However, however, in Europe, that rule is only for players who are under 16. So there is there a two-age bracket, players between 16 and 18, where, where with Brexit, with Brexit, clubs will not be able to, to sign them anymore. And that's that's also interesting. Although, of course, those players will never be very, very skilled. They will be in, in uh, of course, in training will be very, very young. But certainly, uh, academies of uh, English or Scottish or Northern Irish clubs, uh, on the one hand, will probably have difficulties in recruiting players, let's say, in early career, 18, 19, 20 years old, because perhaps they know, may, may not be skilled enough, may not have played enough for their national team. And moreover, they will not be able to sign, in theory, at all players between 16 and 18 because they, they don't fall under uh, FIFA regulations. So, for example, a player such as Cesc Fabregas, who joined Arsenal when he was 16, 16 and a half, he won't be able to come to England anymore. So there'll be a lot of people that would say, actually, for English players, Brexit could be a great thing because potentially it shows that more English players may be playing in the Premiership. And certainly from what you said there, more English players will be in English academies. 
and therefore develop potentially in, into players that play, play in the Premiership. So there, there was a lot of people who would say, actually, this is, this is a really good thing. Indeed, indeed, I think this this can be seen uh, in this way. There, are, there, are, in theory, if you reduce the pool of foreign talent, that will open more opportunities for local homegrown talent. I think the uh, food prof, the PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, has said that already, uh, and that is the that is indeed the case. Let's remember that uh, England is one of the countries, footballing European footballing countries, where more foreign players are actually uh, hired and play. Think it's uh, in terms of percentage, only around a third, a little bit more than a third of the players playing in the Premier League are homegrown. So actually, if you compare it with how many homegrown players are in big in other big leagues such as Germany, the Bundesliga or La Liga in Spain, certainly uh, the Premier League it lags behind. So there is a lot of space to cover to provide opportunities for foreign for English players. Just uh, yes, as a ballpark figure, if we currently at this very moment were to apply the work permit test to current European players in the Premier League, around 350 will not qualify. 350 will not qualify. That's a big number. It's a big number. So uh, English clubs, Premier League clubs, I think that's not only Premier League, Premier League and English Football League. So the top four divisions, the professional game in England, clubs will lose around 350 players. Although, of course, of course, because those players are currently currently living, currently they working, actually. they actually, in theory, and in appliance of the law and the agreement, that they should not lose their path. But, but in the future, but, indeed, that's the element. That's those 350 players that exactly. take up that that part of the exactly. league, and therefore, as we look to sign new players, there's those. If it stays the same, those 350 players will be replaced exactly. and, by English players. Exactly, and if we say 350 players out of the 92, 92 professional football clubs in the uh, pyramid, in the professional pyramid in, in England, that's uh, three, three point something between three and four per club. <laughs> let's okay, three and four may not look like a big number, but let's remember three and four. It's uh, a third, between a third and a quarter of the of the of the squad of the lineup. Yeah. And if go if we say a squad is normally of twenty five players, it's a fifth of the squad. So I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's a significant number yeah. that could be could go for uh, English players. However, however, the question is, will English clubs have enough? coaches to a, a scouting instructors to identify that young talent and to bring it up uh, to so know, first time I know, I know you've team. got a statistic on this so do you want do you want to give the statistic regarding coaches because I think we've heard this before that coaching in the UK lacks behind the foreign market so what 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 are the numbers on that how many yeah. coaches do we have in comparison to the other top leagues that is uh, an important problem that is going to be an important problem and one that may be exacerbated by Brexit uh, and one that some clubs have actually uh, started to realize. So, for example, uh, Brighton and Hove Albion recently hired Dan Ashworth, the technical director of DFA. And one of the reasons why they actually hired Dan Ashworth was Brexit. The chief executive officer of, uh, of uh, Brighton and Hove Albion said, Well, we've been looking at Brexit. We think we'll have to up our game in identifying young talent. We've tried to get someone who we think is good at that. And that was Dan Ashworth. So that tells you that. Uh, British or English clubs in this case, and in this case Brighton, which is a very well-managed club, know 
there there might be a problem there. No, they don't have enough professionals to do that. And that is backed by the numbers, which is what you asked me. Um, England has traditionally had a shortage of well-qualified coaches. Uh, we can, we need to measure somehow. We need to get numbers somehow, and in that, we what we do is to to see the number of coaches that have followed what they call the official batches. The official batches, the the, the coaching courses that are endorsed by UEFA. Those are normally called UEFA A, B, and Pro license. So three categories. In England, you only have. 2,600, sorry, yeah, 2,669 English coaches that have UEFA badges. So basically under 3,000 coaches with UEFA badges. Whereas in Spain, let's remember, Spain is a country of half of the population of the United Kingdom. Of course, England is not the whole United Kingdom, but England is 85% of the United Kingdom. So still a lot of, still Spain is around two thirds smaller than England. Spain has, however, almost 24,000 qualified players. So we are talking 3,000 against 24,000 in Spain. Uh, Italy has almost 30,000 qualified coaches. And Germany, which is a country of similar size of uh, the UK, they have almost 35,000 qualified coaches. So you can say it's not a small difference, it's, it's a lot. Germany has almost 10 times as many qualified coaches as, they, as England has. Uh, Spain has, okay, at least, around yeah, 20,000 more qualified coaches for less population. And I think uh, these numbers are even understood better if we see the number of coaches per player registered. You know, to be a player, you need to register with your club, with your FA and all that. So in England, there are around 2.25 million registered players, okay? So that basically means that there is one UEFA qualified coach for each eight 112 uh, players, so almost 1 to 1,000 is the ratio, 1 to 800, okay, 1 to 800, uh, whereas the ratio in uh, Spain is 1 to 17, so 1 to 800 or and 1 to 17, the ratio uh, in Germany is 1 to 96, so uh, that's, that's really there's a huge difference, difference. That, there's a huge difference, and the question therefore, okay, there will be, of course, a number of very well-qualified coaches working at the top in the professional clubs and probably even from even up to League Two. But you really need to identify early the talent. And that's where those qualified coaches that play in, that are employed in lower clubs are important. And that's where those well-qualified coaches that have to teach those young players at, let's say, high school, secondary age are important because, yes, of course, Manchester United, of course, Nottingham Forest is going to have a good number of well-qualified players. Of course, they are professional at the top of the pyramid, but but you need to go to look down and then they need to progress to, to, to those clubs. And that this shortage of coaches then is compounded by the fact that will all those clubs be able to employ coaches from Europe? Yeah. So are any, like like in the NHS, a lot of the NHS is bringing a lot of nurses, well-qualified nurses from Spain, from Poland, from Italy. Will football, and now many of those are living, and we don't know whether the NHS will be able to actually get those qualified nurses. This is the same case. Okay, there is a pool of well-qualified yeah. coaches outside England, but will they be able to come and work 
in uh, in England, it's the same. So, it's the same as for players. So what so what so what we're saying potentially then is that there there may be an increase in the amount of players from England that can play, but the development of talent from coaches, and I'd probably add into that from players as well further down the league, the, the influence that foreign players have on English players, as well as coaches, will be reduced, and therefore the quality of the English players that are developing will be reduced. I think so. There is there is a potential risk of that. That's the potential. We're because about, at it? the end of the day, we are. Let's remember, we are talking here about okay, when they are young, they are young players, young athletes developing. But we are talking here about athletes, at least that are aiming to develop towards the top of their game. And uh, you or I, you and I are not a specialist in in coaching, but we are well versed in professional sport. And I I think we both will agree that competition makes better athletes. You know, yeah, so you need to you need to compete with the best to get to to get to your best, and even being exposed to new ideas. I think now it is well accepted that new methods brought by Arsene Wenger back in the eighties and nineties made Arsenal and even English football different. And now I've read all everywhere all the prices as to how Pep Guardiola's methods are in are improving not just Manchester United but some even I read oh, last Manchester summer, City Manchester City sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes exactly, uh, but I read even some. People speculating whether this new Pep Guardiola style may have even influenced the success of England in the in Russia in the World Cup. I'm not sure I agree with that because Russia, because England played a very different football style than Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is that it is important for English players, of course, to. Uh, to have more opportunities and to have more players, but it is equally important for them to develop their game, to be training and playing with the best, and that will. And dare I to say that even as again not someone who is a specialist in coaching or in football development, I'm a specialist in other areas, but yes, who has observed a lot of uh, English football, it is even important to try and change the mentality of English football. I've seen a lot, a lot of uh, grassroots football in England, this country, where the mentality of, 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 of the players and the mentality of those watching is the, 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 the game is basically kick it long. You know, and, and that's that's sort of the only acceptable. That's the only acceptable way to way to play football. I think that has changed a lot. I think that has changed. Um, I suppose it depends on what level you're watching. If you look, if you're looking young grassroots level, I certainly think that there has been a step change from the FA and from coaches uh, in terms of how to play. Um, I suppose that probably is a podcast for others here to yeah, talk indeed. about the actual yeah. coaching side of things and the improvement in coaching but what we're saying is that Brexit will cause less foreign coaches to be here less foreign players and therefore if we're looking at things as a from a global standpoint and the Premier League being the global the pinnacle of football in the world we're basically saying that this will reduce the quality of the Premier League. That's, it has that's... the potential to reduce the quality of the Premier League in terms of the football that is played because it will, will less the potential to attract, to attract foreign talent. So I think it, it has the potential to do that, yes. Okay, so let's talk about that. The Premiership in decline. And I think, I, what did I have the title of this? How Brexit could destroy the Premier League. Okay, so we've established if these things go ahead, there's less foreign players, less foreign coaches, and we're suggesting 
a reduction in the talent pool, both coaching uh, and players, and therefore the Premiership's quality is reduced. That's our presumption at the moment. So now we're assuming that, what would you be doing as a as a club? Also, first of all, what would happen to the Premier League if the quality is reduced what, as a product? Well, if the let, let's remember the Premier League at the moment is uh, is the richest and best football league in Europe, well, in the world, really. So it's uh, the gold standard for uh, for perhaps I don't know if football played on the pitch because that's very much to individual to individual taste. Some people would would prefer Spanish football, some people would prefer Italian football, but as a product, is the best, no doubt, no doubt yeah. about it. If your customers, your fans, the people who watch your games, who buy your tickets, who buy your te- television subscriptions, perceive a reduction in the quality of the product, because it's about perception. Let's remember, yeah. it's about perception. It may well reduce the quality, but actually people don't perceive it or people don't care about it. But there is a risk that the perception of less quality reduces, therefore your income reduces. Therefore, you lose, on the one hand, competitive advantage, especially with your main rivals elsewhere in Europe, really, La Liga, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich, and all those, and all those, all those others. So who knows whether perhaps we may, we may also extrapolate that to think that uh, English clubs may do even worse in European competitions, which, which, is, which could well be a consequence. But that's more of a sporting consequence. In terms of the Premier League economically, basically it may well be that uh, there is a reduction of of income. And when there is a reduction of income, that basically means that clubs will need either, again, to restructure their their squads, so to have less players, to pay less to to their players. So again, that will reduce how attractive the Premier League is for foreign players. So all in all, what we are saying basically is that uh, it will be a less attractive product and therefore it will be more difficult for for the teams to compete. Of course, at national level, at national level, if all the clubs are more or less in the same footing, so the Premier League in the national competition, more or less it will be it will be the same then it will depend of course of whether fans like or don't like the quality of the football and uh, it is likely that at the end of the day that is not going to be reduced that much however however i think we need to look at one extra uh, one uh, extra point which is whether the decrease on possible decrease on quality of the Premier League will then also add up to a much highly, highly likely economic crisis induced by Brexit in general in the United Kingdom. All most specialists tells tell you that there is likely to be at least about 10 years of economic crisis and recession in this country. Then who knows, in 25, 30 years things will be better, but sort of the first 10 years could be difficult. And if you are a football fan, or you are just a family person, and you start feeling the squeeze, the economic squeeze of Brexit, what would you do? Will you keep your season ticket? Will you keep your Sky or BT sports subscription? That's where we need to start joining the dots. And I think at the moment, not many people in the football industry are start are joining the dots of direct impact but also indirect impact on football and let's remember that the latest the latest uh, bid for tv rights of the premier league in the national in the english british market 
uh, went down by around 10%. Okay, so of course it's very high. It's already in decline. It's already in decline. Some people, of course, would say the problem is not is not that it is declining; is that previous round was far too high. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's more of a readjustment. But the reality is that, let's put it very bluntly, the amount of pounds, the so the amount of money that the Premier League is going to get per game, per televised game for the next three years, has reduced by ten percent. Okay, so we have established then that the Premier League, if Brexit goes ahead, we're going to have worse players, worse coaches, the product, as a global product, is going to go down. The other leagues uh, are going to attack that as a situation and sign the top players, grow their brand, reduce the income from um, TV revenues, potentially if there's an economic crisis, maybe spectatorship at grounds goes down and merchandise, and essentially the Premiership is not what it used to be that, that's what we're that's what we're suggesting could happen could happen could happen indeed therefore if you are one of these entities as a part of this product so you're a club in the Premier League and you have got your crystal ball with us and they've seen this as well what are you going to do about this as a club we had this conversation four weeks ago and it just so happens that others have jumped upon this and Sky have already interviewed you about this last Indeed. week. Got, in, got ahead of me. Um, the Guardian, I've got an article from The Guardian here and we're talking European Super League. Exactly. If, you are, uh, if you're a club, an individual club, and I think here is where uh, we need to start uh, making differentiations between the league and the clubs and it's where the cracks in the Premier League and even in the English Football League uh, may start to appear. Until now, now, the Premier League is not only the best football product in the world, it's also an extraordinarily good example of how a league needs to be managed as a whole, as everybody, we are all in this together, like the Americans do. So shared revenue. Shared revenue, yeah, things like uh, shared common branding, yeah. uh, all these type of things that the Americans do so we, well. We may do another podcast in the future. Yeah. I, I'm delivering a lecture on franchising tomorrow, yeah. um, but I think we can touch upon all those things about how you structure a perfect league. Um, in another podcast but they're great things to think about yeah but what I think is that until now the Premier League with with, yeah some things better than others uh, some American leagues are doing things better than the Premier League but in Europe it's probably one of the best uh, leagues at that now what we are saying is that cracks may start to appear or actually cracks have already appeared that's the thing so if you were a club and you were looking for your own individual interest not the league's interest but your own individual interest to maintain your revenue to maintain your profitability because let's remember that for the first time in Premier League history in the last three four years Premier League clubs have been profitable so for the first time in many many years club owners are getting money because until now, it's until heard of yeah. exactly until three years ago, clubs, uh, the Glazers, <laughs> any any Ali Sharuzman of owner or Arsenal, they were not really getting money. Now they are getting money. So if you are a club owner, okay, what can you do? We've already talked about what Brighton and Hove Albion is doing. What we are basically saying is that if you are a top Premier League club, and here we are probably talking the top six, the, your traditional top six, you are likely to have, on the one hand, a possible decrease in revenue. Further to that, you're likely to have a decrease in global audience because you may not be able to hire so many global stars from Europe. So perhaps your income from global markets, your merchandising, internet streams may go down. And if you accept that the real top competition is the Champions League, the European competition, you are likely to have rivals who have 
perhaps more money or not money, but they will increase in their, 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 their income, but also they will have better players or more players available to them. So the question the top clubs should be making themselves therefore is, should, should we still actually play in the Premier League? see that there has been secret meetings according to this article in the Guardian uh, involved so from the Premiership Manchester United Manchester City Chelsea Arsenal and Liverpool already been involved in conversations about the European Super League exactly. and, and as we mentioned briefly before following more a, a closed league structure like the Americans so franchising into a league being part of it and having not been able to face relegation for 20 years according to this exactly which as a product as a club well that sounds pretty appealing exactly because you have income which is uh, which is completely secure for a number of years 10, 15, 20 years you also have a small competition which is probably more marketable although because it's new it will need time uh, but playing playing fixtures potentially all over the world it could Premier well be talked about game 39 years ago not going to happen, but in this format, you could be playing in India, China, wherever, and be a be a, a global yeah. team that travels with their could, families. Indeed, it could it could be quite revolutionary, but that could that could well be that new European league could decide to play more, the majority of games, of course, home and away in Europe, but then decide to play a number of games abroad, like the NBA or the NFL does uh, in London now, for example. So that that could well uh, well happen. The real question is basically how to do that, you know. Uh, I come, uh, the way we should come to this to this issue of the Super League is basically, okay, we have clubs in the Premier League who will see their income reduce, their, their value reduce. So they need to make up that loss somehow. How can they do it? One is, is certainly joining a European Super League, a new competition that will give them more money, basically, more money, more value. Now, they can do it by joining that competition exclusively and leaving the national one, or of course, trying to retain their national status and perhaps breaking up with UEFA Champions League and created the rival Champions League to make more money. Then, of course, there we enter into a lot of debates, political debates within football as to whether clubs will be allowed to do that. In basketball, basketball, the richest clubs have created the EuroLeague, which now has 16 clubs 11 of which will play that competition for 10 years and each year they invite five clubs. But those clubs still play their National League. And they are allowed to play the all, National all League. All clubs still play the National League. All the uh, all, Euro all League clubs, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the clubs in the Euro League, they do that. However, players, basketball players that play in the Euro League cannot play, or at least cannot play some of the fixtures of the national team. Because national teams, national federations are actually scheduling fixtures of national team in the same days that Euroleague That's very plays. Interesting. So let's say, let's say basically, Manchester City joins a new Euroleague. A Euroleague plays on a Saturday, and then England and UEFA decide that that same Saturday day there is England playing Germany. Who could Harry Kane play for? Could they? Could he play for Tottenham in the Euroleague game against Milan? Or would Harry Kane play for England against Germany? Again, it's, it, that is a brilliant question. I think something that our listeners will really want to think about. Um, and probably a really good thing for looking at that globally in terms of the power. Because in some in some sports, the power's with the national governing body and with the national team. But the premiership's a different beast. And we all know the power's with the clubs 
in, reali- in reality. So I think that's a really interesting one we could talk about um, a lot further. I think you bring an interesting point here because the articles that I've seen so far all talk about breaking away from their, their nation. And what we're really talking about is the potential, or what we discussed about a month ago, is the potential for each club to have almost two teams. And they have their team that plays nationally and the team that plays globally. Exactly. If clubs uh, go for, okay, let's uh, let's create a new Super League, but not break with the national team, or actually, actually, even if they decide not to break away, let's keep playing the Champions League. Let's say UEFA comes with a new format, uh, UEFA gives the clubs more money. But let's remember that in the Champions League, there are no nationality restrictions, okay? So clubs playing in the Champions League, they can play and field any foreign players from Europe, from around the world they want. However, however, English players might be reduced to do that in their national league. So again, let's say a team such as Arsenal or Manchester United, then they will have, if they want to compete in the, in the Premier League, in the national league, they will have to follow those new rules we've been discussing before. So they may not be able to uh, employ European players. However, if they are going to play the Champions League, that is not the case. So, which brings us to question, okay, perhaps a team, a club such as Manchester United or Arsenal or Tottenham, who is, who is playing in Europe, they decide, okay, we'll keep a sort of weaker squad for the National League, for the Premier League, because it complies with the new FA and work permit and government Brexit-induced regulations, but we will still uh, have... A, l- a larger and bigger squad or even a different squad to play in Europe. A global empire. Global empire. And this may sound crazy. This may sound crazy. Okay, how is this How is a, a club going to have two teams, like A team, or B team? However, again, I know this is not a very pop, uh, popular sport in, uh, in this country, in, in Britain, but again, we really should look at basketball because there is one club, Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, from Israel, who plays the EuroLeague. Israel is in Eurovision, is in UEFA, is also in Basketball Euroleague. And that team was proposing to have two different teams, one for the National League and one for the Euroleague. So, and Maccabi Tel Aviv is a relatively traditional basketball team, you know, they are not outsiders. They've been European champions a number of times. They are a very traditional basketball team. So what we are seeing here is we are seeing dynamics in which, in this case of Israel, where the national context forces the club to have two different teams for European and national competitions. So that could well happen in England as well. Which is what Brexit could do, because I would imagine, let's say Manchester United, they could they could register as a company in Europe and they could have whatever players they wanted playing that team and then registered as a club in England and have those restrictions on them, which may lead to them having their global team where they can sign anybody and their national team where they can't and they're, t- they're the two things come about. So even though this is um, a fantasy built up in, in our heads... Yes, indeed. <laughs> let's, let's make that clear. There are some realistic prospects of some of this uh, coming to fruition. This, this is a this is a fantasy to a certain extent, but it is a fantasy based on real facts. It's a fantasy uh, or based on our analysis of the legal and economic consequences of Brexit for uh, the sports industry and for the wider society. 
But I think that's brilliant. I hope I hope our listeners have have taken that um, on board, and you know they've heard it here first. If Brexit if Brexit goes ahead as as is and, and as is imagined in our heads, then we could be seeing the decline of the Premiership and the rise of the European Super League. I think that's the message that we're giving to to everybody. Today. I think that exactly. I think that's the message. I think basically is that Brexit uh, Brexit certainly increases the chance of the creation of a breakaway Super League and especially increases the chance of the biggest and richest clubs in both the Premier League but also the uh, the Football League also the Football League we've heard a Leeds owner actually to complain a lot about the, the, the Football League so Brexit increases the chances that the cracks start to appear in that structure and therefore decline may start to appear although of course as we said at the very beginning we really cannot say it for sure because we don't know what Brexit agreement is going to look like. And of course, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed in relation to Brexit. Perfect, Borja. Borja, thanks very much for your time. Um, and thanks for giving us that very, very clear idea of what could happen from Brexit. And like we said, we this may be pie in the sky and nothing really happens. Or, you know, you may have heard it here first and this, you know, our crystal ball shows you what's going to happen. We'll um, claim it. <laughs> we'll take it from there. Um, I just want to thank you all for listening. If you if you've enjoyed the discussion or if you have further questions to ask then Borja I'm, I'm sure they can contact you have you got a Twitter handle that they can contact you on I do yes they can uh, contact me at Dr. Borja Garcia which is D-D-R for doctor and then B-O-R-J-A and Garcia like all together no dashes no underscores everything uh, Garcia is of course like Andy Garcia or Sergio Garcia they'll yeah. find you they'll, they, they will find you if they want to ask those questions so any questions about Brexit and any specific questions about this then please feel free to get in contact with Borja on Twitter if you have any questions or any any topics that you want to see discussed in our future podcasts then you can get hold of me at martinfoster82 thanks for listening I'm sure we'll hear from you all soon